Let's give attention now to God's word, Mark chapter 12, beginning with verse 28. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. Amen. We'll end our reading there in verse 34 of Mark chapter 12. Let's once again ask for God's help in prayer. Our gracious God, as we come to you this morning with the sense of our weakness, inadequacy, insufficiency very deeply impressed upon us. We come in weakness and fear and much trembling, knowing that this responsibility is too heavy, is too great, knowing that we need the help of your Holy Spirit in order to listen, in order to hear, in order to hear with the hearing of faith, in order to hear with the hearing of faith that then will turn into practice. Lord, we pray that this word would come with power to our souls. May the purity, the strength, the piercingness of the word of God come through in spite of all the deficiencies of the vessel. And Lord, may it reach every heart with that word of correction, of instruction, of encouragement, of consolation. Whatever it is that the hearts gathered here this morning need, O Lord, we pray that you yourself, from your word, would give them their portion in due season. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In this particular dialogue between the Lord Jesus and one of the scribes, it seems that there's a little bit of a different atmosphere. We know, of course, that he was challenged by the temple rulers as to his authority to have this, to have cleansed the temple and to do what he was doing. We know that the Pharisees tried to trip him up. We know that the Sadducees tried to make it seem that his doctrine was ridiculous. And now here comes a scribe, and he seems to have a little bit of a more sincere question. Now, what exactly his mindset was can be a little difficult to determine. It doesn't say it here in Mark, but in Matthew, it does say that this scribe also was tempting him. Or another way to think about it is putting him to the test. And that is sometimes very negative. He was tempted by the devil. He was put to the test by the devil. And that obviously was in a negative sense. It was with hostility. But, of course, there's also ways to put people to the test that don't imply hostility. The Queen of Sheba came to test King Solomon, for instance, with hard questions. But she was willing 
to receive the answers, she was open to the input that Solomon had. She wanted to see if he deserved his reputation for wisdom. And given the warm response of this scribe to the answer the Lord Jesus gave him, as well as given the words that the Lord Jesus pronounces towards him at the end of the section, I think we're supposed to think of somebody who he's been impressed by what the Lord Jesus said, as it says there, he heard him reasoning together and he perceived that the Lord Jesus had answered the others well. So he's curious and he is willing to test him, but it's not necessarily driven by hostility. He's not trying to trip the Lord Jesus up. He's just seeing, is he the genuine article? Is he as good as he sounds? And maybe that's the way we could think about the fact that Matthew does use that expression, putting him to the test. Now, this question was not a new question. And in fact, at the time of the Lord Jesus, there were several ways that this kind of a question got asked and answered. Um, There's one fairly well-known story. It appears in a number of the commentators where a Gentile proselyte or somebody who was interested in becoming a convert or a proselyte came to one of the great rabbis and said, teach me the whole law while I stand on one foot, which was another way of putting him to the test. And the rabbi gave him a short answer. Don't do to anyone else what you don't want them to do to you. That's the whole law. All the rest is just commentary. So you can see that this was something that was in the air, so to speak, in the atmosphere at the time. And the question is, which is the first commandment? Now, in one sense, of course, all of the kids can answer that from the Ten Commandments. What's the first commandment? Well, thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment in the Ten. But what he's getting at here is, what is the root commandment? What is the baseline commandment? What's the commandment that summarizes the others and from which all the others flow? And the Lord Jesus doesn't say that that's a bad question, but he does answer it by telling him two commandments. That's interesting. It suggests to us that there's a sort of an irreducible complexity to the law of God, that we're not supposed to oversimplify it. But you can summarize it, and you can summarize it in the command to love. And the Lord Jesus does that when he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, and then again when he adds from Leviticus 19, verse 18. Now, this could be a sermon all by itself, and so I want to keep moving through this without unduly suppressing the importance of any part of it. First of all, you notice, what is the summary of the law of God? Well, the summary of the law of God is love. And that should not be a big surprise to us. We've read that before. You can find it in the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 13, verse instant, for instance. Love is the fulfillment of the law, Romans 13 and verse 10. Or then again, you have it in 1 Timothy, the purpose. The end of the commandment is love out of a pure heart with faith unfeigned. So God's law was always about love. Now, people sometimes take that and they do the wrong thing with it. They'll say, well, if God's commandment is about love, as long as I do whatever I do in a loving way, then I've kept the law, right? Well, the problem with that is that then they're defining what love is. They're defining what love looks like. They're the ones making the decisions 
about what love means. And that's the wrong message to get from this. The connection of love and law means, on the one hand, that if we're keeping the commandments in a cold and dreary way, there's no enthusiasm, there's no warmth, there's no love for God or others in our hearts, we're not really keeping the commandments because the commandments reach the heart. The commandments call for love. But it also tells us that if we're not loving in keeping with the commandments of God, what we're doing isn't actually love. You might feel warm and fuzzy. I'll grant you that. But that doesn't mean that you're loving the way God defines love according to the genuine nature of love. So we never want to separate these things. The commandments are good. The commandments tell us what is right and what's wrong. And we need that in order to know how to love. So on the one hand, the commandment absolutely calls for love, but then the commandment also tells you what love is. And so we need to be realistic with ourselves. On the one hand, we might fall into the trap of a loveless obedience, which really isn't obedience at all. It might look like obedience. It's external conformity. But there's no heart in it. That's not what God is aiming for. On the other hand, we might redefine what God requires according to our own subjective views of love. And then we just call our sin love and go for it. Neither one of those is what we need to be getting at. Biblically speaking, the law leads to love, but love is defined. Love is described. The behavior of love is set out in the law. Those are all different ways of saying the same thing. But with that in mind, I want to draw attention to something. When the Lord Jesus quotes the commandment, he doesn't start with, this is what you will do. He doesn't start with the imperative, with the actual grammatical command. He starts with a declaration first. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that is not an insignificant thing. The scribe said, what's the great commandment? What's the first commandment? What's the root commandment would be another way to think about that. And Jesus says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Is that even a commandment? Well, in a sense, you could say here is a commandment. Is the first commandment to listen to what God says? Well, in a sense, because if you don't do that, how are you going to know any of the rest? But even more than that, the Lord Jesus is highlighting the nature of God. He's highlighting God's unity. He's highlighting God's simplicity. He's highlighting God's uniqueness. All of those things are bound up in the idea that God is one. That means there's no other God. That means there is no one like God. That means that God is entirely what he is. He's not made up of different ingredients. God is one. Why does the Lord Jesus tell us that first? What's the great commandment? God is one. Well, God is one is not a commandment. But it underlies all of the commandments. You see, this is a great truth about the law as a whole. Why are we supposed to do what we're supposed to do? I have never answered so many why or why not questions as in the past two and a half weeks. Why are we supposed... There's a certain little someone who always wants to know why or why not, as the case may be. Well, that's natural. That is very typical. We do want to know why. And the Lord Jesus starts with this because this is why. Why are you supposed to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength? 
Because there's only one. Because there's no one like him. Because he is what he is. You remember, that's the great name he revealed to Moses. Moses said, whom shall I say sent me? And God said, I am that I am. That's bound up in this idea of his oneness. Why must you love God? Because of who he is. If you don't get that, you really have not learned how God and his commandments fit together. God isn't giving you irrational things that he just made up on a whim. The commandments that God is giving to us are all deeply based on who he is and on who he made us to be. These commandments are not unnatural. They're not burdensome. They're not something that restrains good behavior. The commandments are right. They're just. They're good because they proceed from, they reflect the character of the God who gave them. Why must you love the Lord your God? Because he is. Because he is one. Why must you love him supremely? Because there is no one like him. Why must you love him in integrity with the whole of your soul, with all of your being, not excluding your strength, not excluding your possessions? Why must you love him in this way? Because he is who he is. If we're ever going to have a right attitude towards the law of God, if we're ever going to receive it graciously as we should, we have to understand that it's very reasonable. We have to understand that it's based on the character of God. We have to understand that it reflects who he is. When we see that, then we're in much better shape to say, yes, I will take up the yoke of this law. I will walk between the lines that it draws for me, this is where I need to be. Jesus begins with this so that we won't separate love and the law, so that we won't separate God and the law. And of course, you remember, God is love. When we're putting God and the law and love together, we're just learning how to look at things properly. We're not coming up with something new. We're reflecting what has always been the case because God has put those things together. You see the grace of God. He gives us reasons for obedience even though he doesn't have to. And what is it that he requires? Well, he requires love. That's a good thing. The law is for your benefit. And it's one of the most searing indictments it's one of the most horrifying exposés of how wicked we truly are, that we can take this law of love and we can grumble, we can whine, we can complain, we can say, oh, I don't want to do that. That's bad for me. Really? It's bad for you to love the Lord your God supremely? It's bad for you to love your neighbor as yourself? It's not bad. It might be unpleasant, but then what does that say about the state of our hearts that it's unpleasant to do that? When we see the law this way, it shows us our sin as well as showing us the character of God. What he requires of us is so rational, so easy, you would think, so proper, and yet we have such a hard time with it. Now, the Lord Jesus joins to the love of God, the love of neighbor. The scribe asked about one commandment, and the Lord Jesus gave him two. Those two are united by the idea of love, but... It's very important to have both. Sometimes people think, well, 
I'll love my neighbor and I don't need to worry about God. I don't need to be a religious person. I don't need to go to church. Yeah, that's not how that works. Love for God comes first. But then you also have people on the other extreme. Well, you know, I'm so busy praying and doing good works and singing hymns. I can't possibly help somebody. I can't do anything for them. You know what? I don't. My life is devoted to godliness and all the rest of you just have to fend for yourselves. Well, that's also not the genuine love of God. Love of God and love of neighbor necessarily go together. So the Lord Jesus has set before us what is the great commandment. He's set before us that the law can't be reduced too much. You can't wrap everything up into such a neat bundle that you forget about part of it, that you're leaving something out. But you can summarize it as love, supreme love for God, love for neighbor, that is a love of the same kind that we have for ourselves. Just as we're tender to ourselves, just as we cherish ourselves, just as we're very considerate to ourselves, we should be very considerate to our neighbors, to those around us. That's told us about the goodness of the law. That's reminded us of how the law reflects the character of God and of how reasonable that law is. So was this a good answer to the scribe's question? Well, the scribe thought so. He basically repeats what the Lord Jesus said word for word. Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God and there is no other but he. And then in repeating the words of the Lord Jesus, at the end he adds this, to love God and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. In other words, he realizes that the core of the law, the point of the law, was not the religious rituals. The point of the law, the core of the law, was this connection, this relationship, this love between God and man and between one human being and another. Now, that wasn't something completely new. He could have learned that from Isaiah. He could have learned that from Hosea. He could have learned that from some of the other prophets. He could have learned that from the book of 1 Samuel, where to obey is better than to sacrifice. To listen to God's voice is more pleasing than the fat of rams. You see, there's a lot of people who approached the question of sacrifice in this way. Well, I haven't been perfect, so now I'll buy God off with a sacrifice. I'll pay my little fine, I'll do my little bribe, and everything will be fine again. You know, if you could get away scot-free with sin at the cost of a few animals, as, you know, as long as you have a, a pretty good-sized herd, what's the big deal, right? You can sin because you can afford to sin. That's the wrong approach. That's the wrong approach on many different levels. Well, for one thing, it's treating sin like a privilege, which it is not. For another, it's acting as though God was pacified as though what God really wanted was that blood or that smoke or that burning fat and not the heart. So that's messed up on many levels. But the scribe, this scribe knows better than that. To love God is more than all the religious ritual. Now, sometimes people misinterpret that. They're like, yeah, you can have your organized religion. I'll worship God staying at home. That's not what is being said here either. The point is not to get rid of the ritual. The point is not to get rid of all the external obligations. The point is to say, going through them mechanically, going through them. So, well, I, I punched the clock. I went to church, you know, I punched the clock. I zoned out, but now God has to bless me because after all, I put in my 90 minutes at church or whatever. 
That's not the attitude. When people approach things with that attitude, of course, they get nothing out of it. When you approach the worship of the Lord out of a heart of love, though, it's a lot richer. It's a lot fuller. There's a lot more to enjoy and a lot more to get out of it. But then we come to maybe the trickiest part of this passage, which is the very last verse. Jesus saw that he answered wisely. Now, I want you to notice this. The scribe saw that Jesus answered well. Jesus saw that the scribe responded to what he said with wisdom. So they are recognizing one another's good qualities here, so to speak. And then Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And this is where we do need to think carefully and make sure that we are taking on board the whole of scriptural revelation. So what I want to do first is I want to make something a little bit complicated, and then I want to give a warning, and then I want to give an encouragement. So we'll see if we can remember all of those. So we have a tendency to think in very black and white terms, and there's no question that the Bible puts things in that light on many, many occasions. You must be born again. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. Unless you're a new creation in Christ, you are lost. There's children of the devil and there's children of God. And there's no middle point. There's no half and half. You're all one or you're all the other. There is no confusion. And this is where, in a sense, our sermon series from Ecclesiastes and our sermon series from Mark combine. Because now we come upon something in Mark where we need to understand that there's more than one way to look at things. So in absolute terms, you are either dead to sin and alive to God, or you're living in sin and you're dead to God. And there's an absolute barrier between those. God knows who has been born again, who has been regenerated, and who has not. God is absolutely clear on that difference. And we should not stop anywhere short of full assurance that we've passed from death unto life, that we've been translated into the kingdom of God's dear son. I'm not denying those categories, and I'm not denying the very sharp division between those two categories in any way. But... Think about what the Lord Jesus said here. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Now, in terms of being born again, in terms of spiritual life, you're in or you're out. There's no middle point. And yet here he can say, you're not far from the kingdom of God. So how does that work? Well, let's change the, app, change the venue. We're not talking now about what is true, what is known in, to God, of who's regenerate and who's not regenerate. We're talking in terms of what is somebody's attitude? Are they willing to listen? Are they willing to learn? Are they interested? Are they coming? Are they investigating? Well, in that sense, somebody could be not far from the kingdom of God. Not decided, not declaring, not proclaiming, not on fire, but not closed, not hostile, not averse, not set against. We need to be able to hold both of those things in mind. In terms of what we're experiencing, in terms of how somebody is thinking, they could be in the kingdom 
out of the kingdom, or as here, close to the kingdom. If that weren't true, there would be no need for apologetics. There would be no need for explanations. People would be either in or out like that, and that's, that's the end of the matter. But God often works slowly and gradually. People sometimes come to the Lord, and it's like the man who first saw dimly and then saw clearly. We need to take that on board. Now, on the one hand, that gives us a warning. Here's a man, and the Lord Jesus doesn't say to him, you're in the kingdom of God. He says to him, you're close, you're near, you're not far. Well, wouldn't it be such a disaster, such a tragedy to be near and yet never come in? You might remember that years later when Paul had been arrested and he proclaimed, one of the people who was at his trial said to him, you almost, almost persuade me to be a Christian. How horrifying is that to think I came so close, but then I got distracted, I turned away, I fell off, I forgot about it. Let me encourage all of you who are here. I I mean, you're here, you're in church, you're not far from the kingdom of God. I mean, there's many ways in which we could say you're not far from the kingdom. You're hearing the message of the kingdom being proclaimed this second, and I haven't seen anybody yet stand up and storm out and huff. You're not far. But are you in? Are you part of the kingdom of God? Do not let this day go by without making sure if you have doubts or hesitations or uncertainties, Pray about it. Come talk to me. But do not stay close and yet not be a part of it. But let's also take this as an encouragement. We think about how people are lost in trespasses and sins. We think about the darkness that blinds them. And it's easy to think, oh, nobody is ever going to believe. Nobody is ever going to be converted. The kingdom of God is just going to shrink and shrink and shrink. Well, here was somebody... He'd heard the hostile back and forth between Jesus and others. He had been impressed. He asked a question. He followed up. And now he's not far. The Lord is still at work. And the same Lord Jesus who was present in this passage is present with his church. It does make a difference to share the gospel with others. It does make a difference to witness to them. You can just tell them. It doesn't have to be complicated. You can just tell them about how the Lord has helped you this week or this month or this year. You can tell them that, and the Lord can use that to draw them, maybe quickly, maybe slowly, but he can use that to bring them near, and he can get them in. He can get them all the way in. You see, in the Lord Jesus here, you see one who understands the law perfectly. He knows what's at its basis, the character of God. He knows where it leads, what it results in, how to summarize it, love. And the Lord Jesus not only understood it perfectly and taught it well, The Lord Jesus also kept it perfectly. And this one who can reason so well, this one who is the perfect evangelist as well as the perfect lawkeeper, remains with his church until today. And so you and I can have confidence in inviting others to church and sharing the gospel with them as we have opportunity to do so, whether that's a link to a sermon or a tract or a conversation or whatever it may be. Because the Lord Jesus continues to bless his people as they carry on his work today. Amen.